Hey, and welcome to the CCWC podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to be part of today's message. We hope it inspires you, encourages you, and deepens your faith in Jesus. Enjoy the message. Hey, this week we continue our series on, uh, or highlighting all in the family, empowering the family of God by exploring the relationships of humanity. Exploring family relationships and dynamics in scripture, both for our family journeys and for the family of God implications that it might have for you and for me. Anyone who's ever grown up on a farm or perhaps kept chickens or maybe their neighbor has kept chickens recognizes that when it comes to chickens in particular, there are some specific things uh, that you are to expect. One is they are not the cleanest animal. You might not uh, know that, but the eggs that you get at the grocery store, there's a process they go through. And, and sometimes uh, within that context, that process, there's, there's some things that are involved that are, are, are not the, the cleanest uh, things in the world. Another thing you might recognize or you might know is that they eat a lot, they drink a lot, and so they need to be fed, they need to be watered. You might not recognize this or know this, but they have a lot of feathers, and from time to time, they'll let you know, hey, I don't need these feathers anymore, and so they will, they will leave those at your doorstep or typically in the place where you're going to track them in to the house. And one other thing, perhaps you don't know this unless you have a rooster or your neighbor has a rooster, but they can be, or the rooster can be, quite loud. Anybody ever heard a rooster before? Yeah? Most of the time, if you've not been around a rooster, you think, okay, on, uh, you know, at dawn, on uh, every morning, the rooster gets up, it crows one time to let you know, okay, it's time to get up and start the chores or start the day, and then you move on, right? That's, that's the, the caricature we have of the rooster. But, but in essence, what actually takes place in the life of a rooster is they get up very early, they crow, and then they go about their day, and then they crow, and then they go about their day, and then they crow, and they go about their day, and guess what they do next? They crow, right? That's what they do all day long. Now, in most cases, there's a reason for it. Maybe there's a danger nearby. Maybe they find some food and they want to give it to the hens if they're a gentleman rooster, right? Or, or maybe they're, they're out uh, for whatever reason, they're, they're feeling uh, attacked or whatever it might be. There is typically a purpose to them crowing. But what I will say is, as a uh, rooster owner, is that they will crow in times when you are sleeping. They will crow in times when you are, are reading. They will crow in times when you are just relaxing on the porch. They will crow in times uh, of eating. Whenever you are trying to complete a thought, whenever you are trying to relax, whenever you are trying to just kind of get through something, a conversation, whatever it might be, they will crow. And we have one specifically that likes to come and stand on the, the banister outside of our back door, outside of the kitchen, and just crow and crow and crow to all of the neighbors and any of you that might be in earshot. It's interesting as we look at this context of where we're going to go today, and we're going to highlight and we're going to, we're going to explore the fight that sometimes it is the crow of the rooster that can bring about some of the worst in you and me. Now, don't get lost on this, and in fact, don't leave early today, because if you do, you're going to think that I'm some terrible person. But I'm going to start specifically with this kind of reflection upon the fact that sometimes when we live in clo close proximity with someone else, 
And we're going to talk about Hosea and Gomer. And if you don't know anything about them, they were a couple in Scripture. And that's the highlight we're going to look at today is this marriage, not a match made in heaven, but this marriage, so to speak. And sometimes when we live in close proximity with someone else and don't nudge or elbow the person next to you, we can begin to be in a situation where we hear or we interpret things or the things that the other person, so to speak, say or squawk can become like a rooster's crow. I'm glad you laughed and didn't get up and leave. And this parallel, so to speak, is an interesting one because I want us to tuck it away and to kind of think about it in the context of the lives that we live in, in the context of the reminders that we have, in the context of the way that the rooster's crow can be one that can cause us to forget, cause us to get tripped up, cause us to, to, to lose a lack or to gain a lack of focus in our lives, particularly when it comes to relationships. The couple that we're going to ex- explore today had their share of rooster crow moments. Hosea was a prophet, uh, one that uh, wrote actually one of the books of the Old Testament, one that lived a life that was holy and pleasing to God, one who was obedient to God's call in his life, even when it seemed bizarre, even when it seemed like something that didn't make a whole lot of sense. And he was called to marry a woman uh, who was, uh, in, in all aspects, in the way that the scripture talks about it, was promiscuous. In fact, he was a holy, righteous man that was called to marry Gomer, one who lived a life that was not honoring to God, that was the opposite of what God would call for, for one to do and for, one, for how one would to live. But Hosea's call to speak for God was not just through his words, but also through his action and his willingness to commit to the covenant that God had called him to. God calls him to speak on behalf of a nation which was spiraling out of control. Israel had been uh, destroyed. The Assyrian Empire had come and torn them down. And here in the midst of this anguish that this, this, uh, this nation, these chosen people were living, they were, they, were, they were destroyed, they were distraught, they were living in a way that was not honoring to God. And God calls this man, Hosea, to say, okay, I want to I I reveal to this nation that I'm not done with them yet. And the nature and the character of God is amazing in the way that he never changes. And we can be thankful of this. And we just sang about God's, uh, his work in our lives is that he's not done with you and with me yet. Amen. Hosea wrote uh, a book, and it's, it's, in, in, it's divided up into three parts, uh, mostly poetry. And these three parts are the three that we're going to explore today. So why the fight? As we answer this, it's not just about spousal relationships. And so if you're not a spouse right now, don't tune out. I want you to continue to walk through this. It's about being faithful to God and faithful to one another. It's about the reality that our spousal relationships, or for that matter, any relationships we have, have vast implications and impacts on our relationship with God. And it's about a wayward nation, specifically which Hosea was writing to and about that God uses as a metaphor for this committing of adultery, this living a way that doesn't honor God, that we, you and I, can both and all relate to. Because at some point in our lives, before experiencing God's salvation, we lived waywardly. 
So we're going to start in chapter 1, and I'm going to read excerpts throughout, but I'm going to read the, 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 the majority of chapter 1 to kind of set the stage, and then we'll jump to chapter 3 as well. You can follow along in your Bible. I've got, uh, I'm going to read the New Testament. I'm going to read here. It'll be on the screen. And if you don't have a Bible, I will say this. If you would like one, stop by our info center. We would love to give you the gift of God's Word before you leave today. Chapter 1, verse 2. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her, for like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So, without any complaint, without any argument, so he married Gomer, daughter of Dilabam, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Now the first time, so he married Gomer, and she bore him a son. Now in verse 6 it says, Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And it's uh, it's notable there to recognize that the author chose not to say that this was, uh, intentionally chose not to say that this was Hosea's child. Then the Lord said to Hosea, call her Lo-Ru-Maha, which means not loved. That's an awful name. Anybody in here not like your name? It could be worse. For I will no longer show love to Israel that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to Judah and I will save them not by bow, sword or battle or by horse and horsemen. But I, the Lord, their God will save them. So it won't be through their own action, but it'll be through the actions of God. After she weaned this child, Gomer had another son. And then the, the Lord said, and this is once again not attributed to Hosea, call him Lo-Ami which means not my people. For you are, I'd, I'd prefer that one, really, if I were going to pick one of the two. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashores, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together and they will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land for great will be the day of Jezreel. I'm going to jump over right now to chapter 3, read verse 1 through 5. In fact, the entirety of the chapter says, The Lord said to me, Go show your love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another man is an and is an adulteress, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. Though they turn to their gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So I, brought, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about an omer and a, and a lethic of barley. Then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a promiscuous, you may not be a promiscuous or be intimate with any man. And I will behave the same way toward you. For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessing in the last days. What in the world is going on here? 
God calls this man to go and to marry this promiscuous woman. She bores him a son and then runs out on him, has two children with someone else, leaves him all together. And instead of God saying, okay, you know what? She broke the covenant. She's done. He says, no, go and take her again. And not only did he have to go and receive her, but he had to literally pay for what was already his. And let's not get into the logistics or the understanding of, of what it meant to be a woman in that day, but certainly he had already given the, the, the you know, this is, we still celebrate it within weddings now, but he'd already given the, the amount due or the amount needed to the family so he could receive his bride. And here we find him again in the first part of this book, going in this broken marriage and fighting for the woman to which he had already wed, the one that he had already been with, the one that he had already claimed for himself. And God calls him, go find her. Pay off her debts to her lovers and commit his love and faithfulness to her once again, despite her living in adultery. The natural response to being wrong for us typically in life is to battle against the one who has wronged us. To take up arms, to fight, to say, no, I'm not going to allow you to do this. Instead, God calls Hosea in the midst of this storm to have grace and to, and to seek reconciliation. And if you're a note taker, the first note is this. The fight is for one another, not against one another. And there's a profound difference in those two words because for means that while we do engage in conflict, while we do engage in fights within the context of our relationships, we don't do so with the desire to win the fight, but we do so with the desire to win the relationship, to reconcile with the other, to live in harmony and in love and embracing with grace with our God. Now, people are going to wrong us and it's not an easy situation to step back in and to express grace for that person. But in this situation, the, the, the symbology is true that God does that very thing for you and for me. While we were yet sinners, God died. He sent his son Jesus and died for us. So get this storyboard for just a moment. There's brokenness. Then there's this repaired marriage in the midst of these children. There's this, this prophetic symbol of God's relationship with Israel. God has been faithful to them and brought them, the, the Israelites, to, this, to Mount Sinai and entered into this covenant. He's asking them to be faithful. He brings them into this place called the promised land, the place they've been looking forward to. And in the land where they get all of the abundance of all the things, they take that abundance. And instead of saying, thank you, God, for what you've done, thank you for the way that, you have that you've given us your, your glory here on earth, that you've blessed to experience your goodness. Instead of going to him, they go to this other god, lowercase g, Baal, and they, they, they give him, they pay him homage for what he's done. And so God's response, just like Hosea's, is either to say, good luck, I hope you figure this out. Good riddance, you've wronged me. Or to renew the covenant and say, I accept you, I receive you, I come back, I pay for you once again. Through compassion, through faithfulness. And amen, that's what he did. And that's the business that he's in. You see, ultimately, Hosea is asked to live out and to illustrate. You know, some of the prophets, their job, their goal was simply just to preach or to share the truth. Hosea literally had to live out in his lifestyle to illustrate the symbolic nature of Israel's plight. 
He was, he was standing symbolically as God saying, okay, I have entered this covenant with another and the, my bride has wronged me. And with the recognition was that he could just write her off. But instead, God called Hosea to reflect what he does for you and for me and for all of humanity. Even in our brokenness, he reaches in, he pays the price and he allows us back into his presence once again. As the book continues, Hosea goes on to highlight in detail the catalyst for the plight in the lack of, of this word yada. And this word yada is an interesting one. You might have heard it before, uh, yada, 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 right? It has more meaning than just a way of, of trailing off in a sentence. In fact, in, in, chapter, in the next eight chapters, in chapters uh, 4 through 11, Hosea goes on to share the accusations and the warnings to Israel. He goes on to talk about the specific things that are necessary for them to understand where they've been and what God has done in their life. And in many cases, what he does is he pulls back and reflects upon the fact that there is this one main thing missing, this yada missing in their lives. Let me read a few excerpts. They'll be on the screen as well, I believe. Hosea chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, it says, I know all about Ephraim. This is a, a, an illustration shared or a symbolic uh, metaphor shared. Uh, Israel is not hidden from me. Ephraim, you have now turned to, pr to prostitution. Israel is corrupt. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. A spirit of prostitution is in their heart. They do not, and get this word, acknowledge the Lord. Hosea chapter 6, verse 3, let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him as surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains and the waters on earth. Excuse me. Hosea 8, 2 through 4 reads like this. Israel cries out to me, oh God, we acknowledge you. But Israel has rejected what is good. An enemy will pursue him. They set up kings without my consent. They choose princes without my approval. With their silver and gold, they make idols for themselves to their own destruction. Here, recognizing kind of something symbolic or something that's reflecting back to or harkens back to the Tower of Babel when they thought they could do it themselves. They want to make a name for themselves. And in essence, God's saying, no, you're not the one who does this. Instead, it's me. And then finally, Hosea chapter 9, verse 7 says, the day of punishment, uh, the day of punishment are coming. Days of punishment are coming. The days of reckoning are at hand. Let Israel know this because your sins are so many and your hostility so great the prophet is considered a fool an inspired person a maniac these charges all center around a lack of connection with God Almighty you and I both know there's a difference between head knowledge and heart knowledge especially when it comes to spiritual things you see, the cause and effect, the lack of knowledge, the Hebrew word yada there means more than just intellectual understanding or an intellectual connection with God, knowing that he's God and, and, and I am not, or knowing that God is all-powerful and I am not. It includes a relational element. Yada actually means to be engaged with God, to know God, to know about God, to allow God to know about me, and actually knowing him relationally. Yada means to be known, to make oneself known, to be revealed. And God wants Israel to know this and to have knowledge that changes their lives, that brings them to a new place. 
Hosea highlights the hypocrisy of, of Israel's worship as they broke the Ten Commandments, as they, they worshipped other gods while they still worshipped him at the same time. And furthermore, the fact that they wanted to be rulers. They wanted to have a military to guide them like the Assyrians did or like the Egyptians did. And God's saying, no, I am all-powerful. I am the one that leads. I am the one that can bring forth and make all things new. And so the reality is this, the fight is for a yada relationship with God. You know, it's hard to win the fight, so to speak, against someone else when our desire is simply to know God more. That's one of the amazing things about being part of the family of God, being part of of a relational family with one another and lateral relationships is this is an opportunity for us in discipleship and, and beyond and fellowship and affirmation to get to know God better through engagement with one another. You know, oftentimes through accountability or, or through sharing a word or through praying together, God uses those moments, uses those interactions as an opportunity for us to understand and to know God better. To fight off the other idols of life. Each day we deal with, and I'm sure you deal with this specifically in your life as well as temptations come, we deal with rooster crow moments. And I'm expanding beyond personifying this as somebody else crowing in your ear, but instead, sometimes Satan crows in our ears, this reminder of who we used to be, of how we used to live, of the power that he might have had over us at some time in our life, of the selfishness, of the lack of humility, the things that he knows are the buttons that he needs to push. And those crows come when we're tired. Those crows come when we're maybe just reading or we're relaxing or we're watching TV or we're interacting with somebody. Those crows come in the most inopportune, unexpected times. But God is there in the midst while Satan is continuing to remind us of those things. And he's saying, look, I want to have this deep yada relationship with you. I want to be known to you. I want you to be known to me. And God recognized too that there was still worship taking place. They were worshiping him, but they were also worshiping other gods. And so the reality there is this reminder of, look, I want to be your one and only. Look, Hosea, I want to, uh, or Gomer, I want to be your one and only. I recognize that you've been promiscuous. I recognize that you've missed, you've, you've, you've missed the mark, that you've gone off on your own. But I want to be your one and only. The passage continues as Hosea writes in the final three chapters, 12 through 14, more accusations, more warnings are expressed, specifically in chapter 12 through 13. Hosea walks through this history lesson. He talks about uh, Jacob's lying treachery from Genesis 27 and 28, Israel's uh, wilderness rebellion from Numbers 12 through 20, about Israel's choice of King Saul when they went out and said, we're going to make our own king. We're going to have our own king, just like all the other nations do. We're going to set this up the way that we should set it up and should have set it up a long time ago. And he talks about these specific things. And it's interesting to note that in that, and maybe even if we look at it in our own present day context, the fact that sometimes things never change. Satan's using the same tactics, the same ways of being able to try to to tear us down as, as a people group, as a church, as a nation, as individuals, as families. But God's doing the same thing he's always done, which is changing our circumstances outside of what we understand. 
Hosea chapter 12, verse 9 and 10 reads like this, I have been the Lord your God ever since you came out of Egypt. And that harkens back this reminder of, look, I provided for you. I released you. I gave you. And there's another metaphor. I gave you this freedom from your captors. Something he does for us even today spiritually. I will make you live in tents again as in the days of your appointed festivals. I spoke to the prophets, gave them many visions, and told parables through them. Hosea 13, 4 and 5 reads like this. But I have been the Lord your God ever since you came out of Egypt. Why why the repetition? Because we forget. You ever forgotten what God's done for you? You don't have to raise your hand. You may not realize it. You may not look at that and say, man, I forgot what God did for me. But oftentimes the reflection comes when we think about things that are so bad. or We put ourselves in the seat of being the victim. We think, oh man, I can't believe how terrible life is. That's a reflection of the fact, a reminder of the fact that we've forgotten what God has done for us. You shall acknowledge no God but me, no Savior except me. I cared for you in the wilderness and the land of burning heat. And then Hosea 13, 14 reads, I will deliver this people from the power of the grave. Where have we heard that before? The power of the grave cannot hold our Savior. And therefore, because of his life, death, and resurrection, death cannot hold you and I, spiritually speaking. I will redeem them from death where, oh, death are your, O death, are your plagues? Where death are your plagues? Where, O grave, is your destruction? And the final point in that section is this, the fight is won through the power of the one who grants hope. You didn't hear in that passage, oh, you guys got a great military and you were able to find your, fight your way out of Egypt. Are you able to, 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 to secure your own land because of the way that you were so bold and so powerful? Instead, God reflects back to, reminds back to the way that he brought provision, brought relief, brought freedom to his people. And he still, through his character and nature, does that even today. Which leads us to a bit of a twist in the sermon. And I know that the last couple of weeks we've kind of had this kind of twist. And part of that's because of the symbology of the stories. But part of it too is because of the recognition that if I were to stop now, it might be kind of bleak. Right? Maybe almost leave here a little bit discouraged. Like, okay, well, yeah, I, I've messed up a lot. And, uh, you know, I, I realize, or maybe now as you're staying this, Pastor Steve, that I have acted a bit like Gomer, where I've, I've worshipped other gods and I've had focus elsewhere. And here's the reality of where we live in life is the fact that there is hope for the future. If there were no hope for the future, I, I really don't know how we would walk through the storms of life, how we would engage or how we would do anything in the midst of a loss, maybe of a loved one or anything in our lives. You know, if you hear this message today, you may see the parallels in your own life, perhaps uh, other nations or perhaps our nation, perhaps the, the church of today has strayed or, or relied on something other than, than God. Maybe this is the first time that you've thought about this, but having been Gomer in a spousal relationship, but if you remain in this state, there is no hope. So where do we go from here? We recognize God's part and we recognize our part in all of it. God's role in the fight is this, a hope for a future. Chapter 11 and chapter 14 both highlight this. Uh, Chapter 11 discusses the hope for the future. God is the loving father. And in verse 3 and 4 it reads, I taught Israel to walk. I led them with love. I love that imagery I taught them to walk. You remember when, or maybe you're doing it right now, you're, you're trying to help a small little infant walk, take those first few steps. 
and how reliant that infant is on you to make sure that you steady them, to make sure that you help them, to make sure that you get them through, to take that first step or those first few steps. I'm the only one that remembers. Okay, no, no problem. That's okay. I'll just kind of illustrate it for you. Basically, the infant has very little power, very little balance, very little knowledge of what to do. And therefore, the, the, the greater uh, power, whether a parent or a grandparent or an older sibling or whoever it might be, has that, that opportunity to be able to, to hold and cradle and help that small infant. Well, let me just say the imagery here that God is painting through Hosea's uh, work is this, that you and I, just like Israel, are being taught or have been taught to walk and we we do so through the context, the power, the provision of an almighty God. You know, sometimes you might see somebody around a child, maybe it is an older sibling, and they really want to help out so bad, and you kind of look at me and think, I don't know that I can fully leave the room or trust them to be able to take care of their younger sibling, right? They might not have all of the understanding of what it means to support them properly. Guess what? God does. In our lives, we can fully rely upon the power and the provision of our holy God because he knows all. The creator of all, the, the source of goodness. Israel is, is the rebellious one in this specific chapter once again. And God is emotionally torn. He's angry. He's sad. He's compassionate. And in verse, verse 8, using the, the imagery of the metaphor there again of Ephraim, it says, How can I give you up, Ephraim? My heart churns within me. All my compassion is aroused. And here we recognize this point. God allows us to walk through the journey, but he grants hope that our pain is not the end. You know, sometimes we walk through storms. Perhaps you've walked through a storm before and you think, God, just get me out of this. And that's a, a natural prayer to pray, but certainly at the same time, God's desire isn't always to get us out of it, but to teach us, to grow with us, to help us through the storm so that we might recognize his goodness. We might grow in a relationship with him. Most of the time we grow through or you learn better through a loss than you do a victory. And so in those lost moments, those storms of life is when we can grow closer to, and, and deeper in relationship with our Savior. The trend from chapter 11 continues in chapter 14. Hope for the future. He calls them to repent, but he knows it won't last. And God grants his promise in verse 4. He says, I will heal their waywardness and love them freely. For my anger has turned away from them. And the second point is this. God's ultimate purpose is to heal and to save his people. Perhaps you've heard this phrase before that God is for you. And what that means is he loves you. He created you in his image. He created you to, to, to live, to grow, to worship, to interact with him, and to live spiritually speaking and, and eternally speaking in eternity with him forever. But it's through the midst of this life that we experience opportunities to heal and to be saved so that we might grow and to be able to be in the presence of a holy God. And so what's our response? Our response in the fight is an interesting one because perhaps you've heard specifically, and I'm going to transition to a, a, another passage in the New Testament, perhaps you've heard specifically of, of this person, this, this apostle named Peter. Peter was, was given the nickname by Jesus himself as the rock, as one that he would, he would build his church upon, one that he would use in a very real and relevant way. And, and if you've heard about Peter, you've heard all the good things, but perhaps you maybe have minimized or forgot about or, or maybe don't think about it unless it's talked about maybe from the platform or you hear about it from somebody else, that there was this Gomer moment in Peter's life. 
In fact, if you don't remember it, I'm going to just read this uh, real quickly. Uh, It's Luke chapter 22. It's recorded here. Verse 54, it says, Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. That's Jesus being taken away. And Peter followed at a distance. and and, And when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the country, the middle of the courtyard, excuse me, and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight, and she looked closely at him and said, this, this man, this, this guy, wait, wait a minute, I, I, I recognize him. This man uh, was with him. He was with Jesus, but he denied it. Woman, I do or I don't know him, he said. Quickly stifling this, 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 this uh, accusation against him or what he saw as an accusation. Verse 58 says, a little while later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied a second time. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for for he is a Galilean. And Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And just as he was speaking, Maybe you've heard the story before. Maybe you're following along. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. And I, I read this passage now, and I, it's certainly it's, it's beginning to bring up a, a little bit of an emotion within me because I, I, I'm, I'm thinking about the reality of what it means to be the one to deny Jesus, the means to be the one who, when the rooster crows, we're reminded uh, of, of what God has said and our shortcoming to it. And some, uh, some amazing things that I, I, I pull from this, the first thing is that Peter was alone in that, meaning that he wasn't with the other apostles, so that he at one point had to go to the rest of the apostles and admit a sin that he had committed. He told them. He humbly went and said, look, here's what I've done, because they were all aware of it later on in Scripture, if you read. Not only that, he had told Jesus. And on the other end, and I can't help but realize this, and perhaps there's sounds that are burned into your, mem- your, your memory that when you hear them, it, it takes you back to a different time, to a different thing, maybe a success or a failure. But for Peter, I can't help but think that when he heard a rooster crow for the rest of his life, he was reminded of his sin, of his denial, of his shortcoming. He was reminded of his Gomer moment when he stepped away from the mighty God who had given him breath, given him life, allowed him to live alongside him, to grow with him, to go with him. He had said, no, I don't know him. Now, what's the rooster represent? I think in a lot of ways for Peter and for us as well, it represents what what she said to me, what he said to me. It represents the mistakes that we made that we're still holding on to. It represents the worry that we feel, the doubt that we might have. It represents the temptation to continue to return to, to be part of something that we should never have done and we continue to do. It it represents the ruts that we might be in. And the fact that that rooster continues to resurface is interesting because Satan knows that through his temptation, that he's attempting to try to pull us back into what we used to be. In essence, God says, no, that's not who you are anymore. 
I have bought you. I have brought you back. I have renewed the covenant. I have shared and expressed to you my love. And I want to live in harmony, in unity with you. We've got a few less roosters at my house right now than we did a couple of weeks ago. I can tell you, I, I like to incubate eggs, and my wife will tell you that I'm grounded from that for a while. Too many chicks on the farm. And the amazing thing that happens is when those eggs incubate and they hatch, sometimes they turn out roosters. And when they turn out roosters, I have to do something that is, uh, is it's, it's necessary to some extent, either find a new home or I find a canning jar for them. And a couple of weeks ago, my boys and I were out in the backyard and they had fishing nets, which is one of the easiest ways to catch a rooster, I'll tell you right now. And we're chasing the roosters around the yard, attempting to try to catch them. And, and there were four new babies that, or they were, they, I would call them uh, adolescents at this point, that we were trying to catch. And, and, and we finally got three and decided which one we were going to keep out of those. And we got them all together and, and we disposed them. And here's, here's the thing, here's, the, here's the, 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 the metaphor that goes along with it. I think what we need to do in life I think what we need to do spiritually in our own world is we need to do the same thing. We need to kill the rooster. And we look at our response, and I'm just saying this, this is the point. Kill the rooster and fight for your relationship with one another with God. Because sometimes we allow this rooster, this continuing, this clanging gong to continue to remind us of who we used to be, bringing us back into the muck, into the rut once again. And instead, God's saying, no, don't let that thing subside. Don't let that thing stay. Don't let that thing continue to nag and continue to pull you in many different directions. But instead, kill that thing and maybe eat it, right? Get rid of it. Don't eat it. I don't know why I said that. <laughs> but here's the reality of what it means to kill the rooster. It means to make a commitment, and it means to do so in some ways publicly. And as I sat down with Pastor Seth this past week, and we typically will walk through the service and plan how we want the elements to go so the Spirit can lead, and, and we, we do our due diligence on one end and allow the Spirit to lead, and we don't even, we don't, often know what's going to happen. But what I do know is this, as we kind of walk through that, the recognition was there needs to be some kind of response to who God is and what he's done in our lives. And I'm certainly not asking anybody to sacrifice an animal this morning, but what I am asking us to do is spiritually or maybe figuratively is to say, I want to kill the rooster this morning. I want to put aside whatever it might be. I want to put aside the anger I have or the doubt I have or the frustration that I've allowed to continue to creep in this wedge that Satan knows that he can drive between me and my spouse, me and my friends, my coworkers, my family, whoever it might be. Say, I'm done with this. I'm killing the rooster today. And I'm letting God lead. Thank you again for spending time with us today. Thank you especially to those of you who give to CCWC. It is through your faithfulness that makes this ministry possible. Also, if you have any questions about today's teaching or if you want to learn more about CCWC, feel free to contact our office, check the web, or follow us on our social media platforms. If you enjoyed today's podcast, we do encourage you to take a moment to subscribe and share it with friends. Let this be a blessing to someone else that you love in your life. You're always welcome to join us on Sunday morning for worship, or until then, we'll catch you on the next one. God bless.